Today we are uh, embarking on a journey, so to speak. At Mosaic, as most of you know, uh, if you've been here a while, we primarily do our Sunday morning corporate teaching in an expository way through entire books of the Bible. And I don't know about you, but uh, every time we start a new book together, it's kind of a, a blend of excitement and a little bit of fear for me, uh, like going on an adventure to, to discover what God has to say to us in his word. And today we're starting a series through the book of 1 Peter that I've titled Exiles. And if uh, you're wondering why I've titled it that, don't worry, you won't have to wait very long. By the end of this sermon, you will know. Uh, but this book, as with the majority of the New Testament, uh, it's a letter. It's a letter. It's a letter written by the Apostle Peter to a string of churches uh, in modern-day Turkey, which was then referred to as Asia Minor. And unlike the last book that we walked through, uh, which was Nehemiah in the Old Testament, with 1 Peter, there's not going to be a ton of historical context that I'll need to delve into before we actually even read. Because while, yes, this letter was written thousands of years ago, it was written as a general letter to Jesus' church. And uh, while it was written in another country, another, in another culture, uh, what we're going to find, I think, is that our country and our culture, uh, though more modern, has an increasing amount of similarities to theirs. And so with that, let's, uh, let's go ahead and uh, we'll read a couple of verses and then we'll pray and then we'll dive in. Let's go ahead and read 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for so great a salvation that you have freely given us in Jesus. That is why we are here, God. Not because we are a room full of really good, rigorously religious people, but because you first loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you sent your son to come and do all that was required to rescue, redeem, and reconcile us back into a right relationship with you by the work of Christ in his perfectly righteous life imputed to us and his atoning death, which absorbed your wrath, which we deserved. Thank you, God, for that gospel and how it has drawn us all to you together as your church. Father, we thank you for all the mothers in this room, how much they selflessly do for us to serve us so often unseen and unrecognized and how much it means to us that they are here with us. But Father, I also pray for all those who may not yet be mothers but desire to be. Perhaps for reasons unknown to them, you have not yet granted them the blessing of children. My prayer for them is that they would know that in no way 
Does that affect their value or their worth? And it's certainly not an indication that you love them any less. In fact, we often see, God, that you give a special and very sensitive kind of care and affection to women in Scripture who are for a time unable to bear children. So would you be near to any ladies in this room who may find themselves in that position today? Lord, I also would just like to take this moment to praise you for what you seem to be doing in our country by allowing such a horrific and unconstitutional ruling by the Supreme Court, Roe versus Wade, to be struck down. We pray that you would see that new ruling through, that the lives of many unborn children might be saved and not senselessly slaughtered in their mother's wombs where they ought to be safe, Father. But now, God, as we turn to the book of 1 Peter, Lord, as always, we are excited to hear from you and we are expectant that as you always do, you will use this Holy Spirit-inspired letter to grow us and mature us, to lovingly unsettle us, to rebuke us and exhort us, and to strengthen and encourage us. Would you be with me, God, as I teach this morning? Lord, help me to be bold and clear and to say all that you would have me to say and nothing that you would not have me to say. And would you be with the men and women who are here to sit under your word? I pray that as you say, your word will not render void, but that it would do all that you intend for it to do by the power of your spirit. We love you, God. We pray all of this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Well, as an adult, uh, I travel a lot more now than I remember traveling as a kid. I was born and raised in Jacksonville, Florida, on a, and on a biannual basis, maybe. I remember traveling like to Disney World for a day trip or Marietta, Georgia for a week to visit some family, and that's about it. But nowadays, well, uh, I've traveled like four times to four different places just this year alone so far. By the end of the year, I'll probably travel that many more times to different places uh, not as much as some people travel, but I, I do come and go every few months somewhere to do something work-related, family-related, the occasional vacation. And, you know, as a kid, traveling is exciting, you know. It's exciting as a kid. It could still be exciting depending on where and, and what for, but something I have realized as my travel plans have increased is that I love to get home. <laughs> I love to get home because traveling is tiresome. Maybe some of you can resonate with this. I, I miss my bed with my pillow. To be clear, not my pillow, the brand. I'm not trying to make a, any subtle political endorsements here. I'm just saying, <laughs> some people got that. There's, a, there's just a, a particular level of comfort I have in simply being home and being able to sleep in my own bed. Uh, at night, but you know, also I was gone last weekend uh, for my little brother's college graduation at the University of Florida, and I, I missed our church. I missed being with our church. I missed being with you guys and worshiping Christ together. I, I won't say I missed Crestview per se, because it's nice to go places every now and again that have more options than fast food and Dollar Generals and vape shops, but um, anyway, you know, <laughs> several years back, Amy and I had the privilege of traveling to Mumbai, India, and it was an amazing and humbling experience where we met Asram Kamble, a pastor and a church planter 
who we support as a church to this day. Um, but I'm sure that many military in the room can resonate with this. When we got back after an 18-hour plane trip to the U.S., there was a sense in which we felt home. We felt home. Just nice to eat food prepared without curry. But anyway, to that point of the U.S. being our home, I just want to first say, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful to have been born and raised here. Like Cree Bratton, I'm, I've already won the lottery. I was born in the U.S. of A, baby. But seriously, I really have been afforded so many freedoms, and we all have freedoms and opportunities by God's grace, just because of the country that we can technically call home. However, over about, I don't know, the last five years or so, I have increasingly grown in my sense as a Christian that this place, albeit the land of the free and the home of the brave, is not my home. It's just become undeniably clear by the culture around us shifting and changing at what feels now like breakneck speed and not only a post-Christian direction, but an anti-Christian direction. The more I tune in to the daily news reports of things happening in our country, the more I feel like an alien on a strange foreign planet. Have you felt the same way? Christian author Carl Truman who wrote the highly acclaimed book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, he, he says it this way. He says, Many of us are familiar with books and movies whose plots revolve around central characters finding themselves trapped in a world where nothing behaves in quite the way they expect. Perhaps Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland might be a classic example of this in children's literature, but this is a standard plot line in many other works, from Franz Kafka's The Trial to the Matrix series of movies, Dystopian confusion is a hardy perennial in our culture. Yet this phenomenon is no longer confined to the fictional products of our day. For many people, the Western world in which we now live has a profoundly confusing and often disturbing quality to it. Things once regarded as obvious and unassailable virtues have in recent years been subject to vigorous criticism and even in some cases come to be seen by many as more akin to vices. Indeed, it can seem as if things that almost everyone believed as unquestioned orthodoxy the day before yesterday, that marriage is to be between one man and one woman, for example, are now regarded as heresies advocated only by the dangerous lunatic fringe. Welcome to this strange new world, he says. You may not like it, but it's where you live. And therefore, it is important that you try to understand it. I found this to be an incredibly insightful assessment. Those who mistakenly thought that America was a Christian nation in the last decade or so have been quickly forced to watch that notion evaporate before their very eyes in exchange for a nation that not only celebrates every form of sexual depravity, but insists that we celebrate it too. Or else. Or else be labeled and shamed as judgmental, right-wing, religious extremists. Now, while you may agree with my logic here, perhaps you're wondering what this has to do with 1 Peter. The answer is a lot. A lot. You see, Peter who walked with Jesus personally and became an apostle, 
that is an authoritative representative for Christ himself, whose written words to the church have now been preserved as God's actual words, perfectly inspired by the Holy Spirit in Scripture, he refers to those who he's writing to in the various regions of Asia Minor as elect exiles, which is a peculiar phrase uh, for some reasons that I intend to lay out for you. We'll get to the elect piece of it in just a bit. I know some of you are on the edge of your seat uh, to know what I'll say about that. And so if that's you, the first thing I'll say is calm down. (laughs) It should be thought-provoking to us, first of all, that Peter refers to these primarily Gentile believers as exiles because in the technical earthly sense of the word, they're not exiles. They're not exiles. His letter is being circulated to them in the places where they actually live. From our time in Nehemiah, we know what exiles are, don't we? They're people who have been displaced, usually for political or punitive reasons. A modern example would be many Ukrainians who have been forced to leave their homes under the threat of war. God's people in the Old Testament experience a great and terrible exile as God's judgment on them for their continuous, unrepentant, idolatrous disobedience. But this is not the case for Peter's intended audience. So why does he refer to them as such? As exiles, or some translations render that word aliens, strangers, pilgrims, foreigners, or as the Greek word parapetimos literally renders sojourners, temporary residents who are simply Passing through. Well, it's because while there were many examples of literal exiles among the Old Testament saints, New Testament believers are metaphorical exiles and that they are not yet truly at home, even in their earthly homes. I sincerely hope in my time teaching here that you have been served by my attempts to explain not only clips of the biblical narrative, but zoomed out generalizations of the entire story. This is a crucial skill that you'll need as a student of the Bible, because while we read daily, hopefully, in a zoomed-in kind of way, verses and passages, they often only make the very best sense if we can zoom out and see how they fit into the broader, overarching narrative of the entire story of the Bible. This is why I often encourage adults who are not raised in the church, like me, okay, to unashamedly purchase for themselves a good kid's story Bible. It will greatly assist you in your big picture understanding of what is going on from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. Don't be ashamed, friends, to have a good kid's story Bible. Our family just bought a new one by Pastor Kevin DeYoung, and I might be enjoying it more than my kids. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's really good. I'll tell you what it is after the service if you'd like to know. But anyway, what you know, if you know the main thrusts of the biblical storyline, is that in a sense, God's people as humanity all became exiles in the third chapter of the Bible, didn't they? 
When Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, they became the first sojourners in a world marred by sin, hoping to make their way back into God's presence. And we find out in Revelation that the return of Christ is when all of God's people who have placed their faith in him will finally arrive back home, as it were. And this is what Peter was getting at by giving these early Christians this odd title, elect exiles. He continues that way of thinking through the whole letter. And at the end, uh, he, he refers to the church in Babylon. Says the church in Babylon sends them greetings. Again, he, he's not talking about literal Babylon. He's drawing upon a reference to Old Testament Israel's Babylonian exile, which we just read about in Nehemiah. By Babylon, he's simply referring to Rome the great empire of their day, which powerful empire as it was and prestigious as it was to be one of its citizens, like being a U.S. citizen, it was filled with the corruption of pagan idolatry and thus not a place where they, as followers of Jesus, could feel at home. Not so different from them, are we? No. In fact, the author of Hebrews helps us to understand that we can resonate even with the Old Testament saints through this theme of exile. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, speaking of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah, he says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they were seeking a homeland If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. He's saying that while all of the Old Testament saints had difficult times, And seasons that they had to navigate, none of them were dreaming of merely arriving in a land where the living was easy. They wanted to be back in a land where God himself was. That's what they wanted. And now as New Testament believers, we know that that will be with Christ in the new Jerusalem that he's preparing for us, which will be ready at his return for us to reside in with the perfect life and peace of Eden Restored once again, unhindered, intimate relationship with God forever. And so Peter calls the believers in these early churches exiles or sojourners to remind them no matter what is going on in their lives, whether bad or good, delightful or difficult, they're still on their way home. They're still on their way home, and by God's grace, they will make it. A modern hymn I really love so much. It's such a great encouragement and and reminder of this reality for ourselves as well. It's called Almost Home. It goes like this. Don't drop a single anchor. We're almost home. Through every toil and danger, we're almost home. How many pilgrim saints have before us gone? No stopping now. We're almost home. The promised land is calling. We're almost home. And not a tear shall fall then. We're almost home. Make ready now your souls for that kingdom come. No turning back, we're almost home. Almost home, we're almost home. So press on toward that blessed shore. Oh, praise the Lord, we're almost home. 
New Testament believers are metaphorical exiles and that they are not yet truly at home, even in their earthly home. So friend, whatever your life may look like right now, maybe as Truman says, you look around and feel that you're confronted with life in a disorienting, dystopian reality that feels unreal to you. Maybe you're walking through financial hardship and struggling every week just to make ends meet. Maybe you're grieving the loss of someone or something that is very dear to you, a family member who's passed away or a dream of yours that seems dashed and now unattainable. Maybe you're in your mid-20s and you're just now coming to grips with the fact that life in a broken world is just not always easy or fair. Or maybe you're in your mid-40s when you always thought life would get easier and it still hasn't. Maybe you just can't help feeling down and melancholy all the time. And you're just too tired and worn out at this point to even try to figure out why. Christian, this journey, ours together, we're almost home. Unto that great forever, we're almost home. What song anew we'll sing round that happy throne. Come, faint of heart, we're almost home. This life is just a vapor, we're almost home. That sun is setting yonder, we're almost home. Take courage, for this darkness shall break to dawn. Oh, lift your eyes, we're almost home. All right, so that's the exiles part. It's incredibly applicable to us, and the rest of this letter uh, is going to be more or less an explanation of how we are to live now as spiritual foreigners in this strange and sin-filled world. In order to do that, we're going to have to dig into the adjective that Peter uses to qualify exiles, that is, elect. Let's go back and read it again because we need to reorient ourselves to what is being said here. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the, in the dispersion, Dispersed just means scattered, okay? So that's how the church is, not just in modern-day Turkey, but in the whole world now, right? Because of the Great Commission, Christians are scattered about everywhere as missionaries to take the good news of the gospel to the lost and the broken who need to hear it. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, uh, this I just want to preface this by saying, this is a doctrinally slam-packed couple of verses. I just want to say to you, I will not be able to exhaust the topics that it brings up. Election and predestination, the Trinity, sanctification, blood atonement. I'm not exaggerating when I say that hundreds of books, if not more, have been written on each of those doctrines. And a lot of faithful Christians with theological degrees, myself included, still are not settled on the fullness of what they entail. Okay? So rather than make a really bad attempt to explain all of them and keep you here for Hours, I just want to tell you what I think Peter means by them in the particular combination which he references them in here. It really flows right out of my first point, so let me read them back to back. So New Testament believers are metaphorical exiles and that they are not yet truly at home, even, even in their earthly homes, and yet they have an otherworldly peace 
secured by the sovereign grace of the triune God by which he does two things, okay? One past tense and one present tense. As elect exiles, Christians have an otherworldly peace secured by the sovereign grace of the triune God by which he chose them in Christ and chisels them into his holy, obedient children ready for eternal life. Okay, so let's, let's break that down. That's a lot, so let's try to break that down. The first thing you should know contextually about these believers that Peter is writing to is that they are living in the early 60s AD, which means that they have likely begun to experience some uncomfortable pushback on their religious beliefs that is increasing by the day. And around 64, 65 AD, it gets really bad under the emperor Nero. Like, when I say really bad, I mean Peter and Paul are both martyred under Nero. Okay, Not many years after the actual sending of this very letter. So not only are these believers spiritual exiles, but in their relationship to the largely immoral, pluralistic society they live in, they feel like unwelcome rejects. And yet Peter, who is living in the belly of the beast, so to speak, in Rome, he greets them by saying, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. (laughs) How can that be? How can that be? It's largely contained in that little modifier, Elect. Elect. They are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Christ and sprinkling with his blood. That is, as exiles, the peace that they have available to them is an otherworldly peace which has been secured for them by the sovereign grace of God by which he chose them. He chose them. In Christ, he chose them. So the word elect simply means chosen. That's what it means. It means chosen. This would be simple enough, but that word foreknowledge comes in in verse 2. It really draws into question the, the how and the when regarding God's choosing of his people. And I just want to say that on that particular question, much contentious theological debate has raged for centuries. Even today, in some churches in our town, any reference to the doctrine of election may be met with a range of negative responses from awkward silence all the way over into angry outbursts. And the reason for that is It is one of the great mysteries of God, how his sovereignty and our free will as human beings relate to one another as pertains to the matter of our salvation. It's a great mystery. I don't claim to understand it fully, but I would simply put forward to you that if you want to understand the whole counsel of God from his word, you will have a very hard time skating around the concept of election or 
God's sovereign and gracious choosing of his covenant people for the sake of their redemption. Hard to get around it. You're going to keep running into it. It's all over the place in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, actually. So let me just read to you a few other texts that mention this concept of God choosing his people. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6, is one of the most important. Here's what it says. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So real quick, these verses present some of the most important things that are clear about God's choosing, okay? God's election. Some things are not clear, okay? Some things are not clear, but some things are. John Piper says, not all things are good for us to know. And so God has not revealed those things to us, but there are some things that are good for us to know, even when we can't fully explain them. And so these are three of those things. I'm gonna give you three of those things from this text in Ephesians chapter one. The first thing is this, okay? And these are not in your notes, and so if you wanna jot them down, you can. But the first thing I would say is from this text is that God's choosing of us was not about anything that we did but it was only the result of his grace offered to us in Christ, okay? In other words, we did not contribute something of merit in order to be chosen. Christ did. He contributed everything. And God chose us based on the grounds of his grace and his mercy alone, not our works, Romans chapter 5 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is good news for sinners today, isn't it? (laughs) Thank you. Any Any other sinners in here rejoicing over this? I know I am. This is a core truth of the gospel message. God's choosing of us was not about anything we did. It was only the result of his grace, which was offered to us in his son, Jesus Christ. We see that in Ephesians 1 and in many other places. The second thing is this. God's choosing of us as his elect, it happened before he even created the world itself. That's kind of mind-blowing. gives a lot of clarity to that word, for knowledge. And really, it just serves to help us be in awe of him and his sovereign plan to save and redeem sinners in need of grace through Jesus from the very beginning. To be clear, this means Jesus was not the plan B. He was the plan of salvation all along from the start. And number three, God's choosing is an act of loving adoption. 
For those who get upset about the challenge that the doctrine of election presents of holding God's sovereign plan in tension with our free will to choose, Ephesians 1 says that God chooses his people like a loving father who sees an orphan in need of a family and a home, and he blesses them by graciously calling them to himself and making them his own. All right, let's keep reading. John 15, 16, Jesus himself says, about as clear as it gets, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. Romans 8, 29, verse 28, it's very familiar to many of us, so I'll read that first. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, that word predestined, don't worry about that. The word just means chose ahead of time. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So I I read all these verses to you this morning for two reasons. The first is simply to say what the great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said of election. I couldn't say it better than him, so here's how he said it. He said, I believe in the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I would never have chosen him. And I'm sure that he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterward. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I'm forced to accept that great biblical doctrine. In other words, the doctrine of God's election is not made up by men. It's clearly and repeatedly presented in Scripture, and it aligns with the doctrine of our sinfulness and our inability to choose ourselves. You see, orphans, orphans don't go into neighborhoods and choose families, do they? Families go into orphanages, and they adopt orphans. The same is true of God with his people. He chooses them. And that does not somehow negate their choice to follow Christ in faith. It simply happens after he has opened their eyes to his electing love for them in the gospel. But the second, and I think more important thing is this. We can split hairs on that other part. I'd prefer not to. But I think the more important thing is this. God's election is not meant to be an upsetting and divisive doctrine. It's meant to be a humbling and greatly comforting truth. Okay? Now, when it's injected into the context of the first century by the Apostle Peter, listen to what comfort it's meant to bring them. Think about it from their perspective when they, when they hear this. He's, he's saying to them, it's as if he's saying to them, you may feel, you may feel like you are unwelcome religious rejects in this modern Babylon but feelings are not always right. Don't believe that. You are not rejects. You are exiles. You're sojourners. 
You're just passing through this dump. Okay? And the world only rejects you because this is not your home. This is not your home. Your home is with Christ, the true king. And he's coming back to get you. He's coming back to get you. And when he does, every eye will see that you are not only welcome in his presence, but he knows you. He knows you. And he has lovingly chosen you to be his people who will reign with him forever. Church, don't let anyone guilt you for holding firm to the doctrine of election. The truth of God's sovereign and gracious choosing of you to be one of his covenant people for the sake of his glory and your redemption is one of the most humbling and comforting doctrines that there is. If God has chosen us and the Bible says that in Christ he has, then no matter what life looks like on this side of eternity, we can confidently say with the psalmist, I will not fear. What can man do to me? And with the Apostle Paul, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Amen? Amen. What a great comfort it is to know that no matter how strange and antagonistic this world gets toward Christians, our hope our salvation, our promise of eternal life, it is not in a state of flux. It's not in a state of flux because it doesn't depend on us. It depends on the great and loving God who has chosen us in an act of sovereign grace through his son, Jesus Christ. It's good news. It's good news for me. If my salvation could be lost, I assure you it would have been before now. So that's the first aspect of how New Testament believers can have an otherworldly peace, even as they are in exile in this broken world. They know that they're elect. They know they've been lovingly chosen and adopted by God the Father into his eternal family before the foundation of the world. But the, the full truth The full truth of it is, God has not only predestined their initial justification in Christ, he's also foreknown and ordained their sanctification by the Spirit. Okay. And so this is the second piece of my final point. In God's sovereign grace, he not only chooses us in Christ, but also he chisels us into his holy, obedient children ready for eternal life. The end of verse 2 says that God has made us elect exiles according to his foreknowledge in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus. You see, the, the reality is there is a false gospel out there. Do you know that? There's a false gospel out there that utilizes the principle of what's been called easy believism. And it goes basically like this. 
This is the false gospel. Trust in Jesus. And then everything will go great for you. (laughs) I appreciate the laughter, friends. Christians there, I'm sure. You know, if you just read the Bible a little bit, like, you don't have to read the whole thing. Just read portions here and there. It is not hard at all to figure out that that is not true, is it? It's not true. Friends, reject that prosperity gospel. That is a false gospel meant to manipulate you, to steal your resources away from the kingdom of God. Now, sure, making the decision initially to follow after God, that's one of the easiest decisions to make when you realize what's actually being promised to you, right? Forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with your heavenly Father, joy-filled, eternal life with Christ. Every true Christian has made that decision as quick as they could, right? The gospel is the best news ever. But the reality is, while choosing to follow the Lord is easy, when you get into the actual following part of it, things get much more challenging, don't they? They really do. Can I just tell you something? Maybe maybe you know this. Maybe you don't know this. I just want to tell you. That's not by chance. That's not by chance. It's intentional. God is sovereign. That means he's in control of all things. God is sovereign, and he actually allows difficulty into the lives of his people because it's in the trials and it's in the testing that God refines and galvanizes our faith. He strengthens our faith in those difficulties. Why? Why does he do it that way? Well, because I would just put forward to you that it's easy to say, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. When you're driving a new car, making more money than you need, living in a house where everything's working with kids who are healthy, it's easy to say, I love you, Jesus, when that's your life. It's when the car breaks down and the roof is leaking and inflation eats almost 10% more of your annual income, or you lose your job, or your kids get sick and you don't know what's wrong, or you can't have kids, that's when we find out if we really love and trust Jesus to be enough for us. That's when we find out. You know, a while back in our community groups, we read through the Exodus, and when you get to Deuteronomy... And you know that, that 40 years of Israel wandering in the desert, when that's finally up, when that's over, God clues Israel in. He clues them in to what that was all about. Why he kept letting them wander around in the desert instead of allowing them to enter the land which he had promised them. He reminds them why he did that. 
Some of you are like, well, he was angry. Well, yeah, he was angry. He was angry about their constant complaining. But there was more intentionality to it than just an angry response. In Deuteronomy 8, he says this. God says, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. You see, it's in these exile-type situations that God is teaching us. He's teaching us by his Spirit how to be holy and how to be obedient to Christ, trusting that he is faithful to keep his promises to be all that we need. We see this all the way through Scripture again and again and again. And this is what we will come to see that 1 Peter is all about. How to live confidently as elect exiles, as chosen sojourners who are being sanctified and made holy by the Spirit, obedient to our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And who know? that even when suffering inevitably comes our way, it'll be all right, because we're almost home. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, what an amazing thing it is. Every time we go to your word, even if we go to two verses of your word, you have so much important truth for us to believe and hope in that just reiterates the gospel, that magnifies Christ as our Lord, our Savior, our treasure, our King, and our friend. Father, I just pray that I did justice to these two verses today. They're a hard two verses to expound on in a short time. And Father, I pray for our time together as a church in the letter of 1 Peter. God, that you would work in it, that you would would teach us, that you would show us that in our lives, everything, everything that comes our way, good, bad, ugly, God, it's all coming our way through your hands. God, you are sovereign, and you are working all things. You're working every single thing together for our good and for our joy and for your glory. We love you, Lord. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. Pray all this in his name. Amen.